was deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And we said that boils down to there's a fork in the road coming when what you want to do and what God wants you to do are two totally separate things. And so I just want to tell you, you're going to have to make a choice whether you're going to deny yourself and, and do what, what God wants of you. And uh, so last week, we sort of had this, um, uh, this prayer that, that we hoped for, that you would, uh, you would pray together, that I was going to pray for you to say, hey, these experiences, these forks in the road, choosing not what you want, but what God wants for you, is one of the most formative experiences of life. It, it's, a, it's such a grace-filled, challenging, but grace-filled moment because you find out in those moments, in those critical junctures, not just who you are, but whose you are. After we find, after we put ourselves on that road, after we recognize that God has put ourselves on that road, it, it, it leads to, I think, an important next step, which is, then what? <laughs> now what? Now that we see not just who we are, but whose we are, not just now that we, we are on the path towards God, now, now what? And if I could just raise the stakes for a few of us in the room right now, I, the estimates kind of differ, but, uh, but, but I'd have to guess that something like a quarter of the people in the room right now are in school in, in some way or, or form. And a quarter of those people are going to be graduating somewhere uh, around now, this month, maybe even of May. And, and so this question looming before of, now what, <laughs> tends to hit home to a segment of the body right now that, that maybe is, is harder than it has ever hit home in your entire life. Now what with my friends? Now what with my family? Now what with my job? Now what with my vocation? Now what? And even if you're not in school, even if you're not graduating, still we have these lingering questions. I mean, uh, I, I am where I am because you know, 10 years ago, I made a commitment. I made a decision. I am where I am because 10 minutes ago, I made a commitment. I made a decision. Is, is what was right for me then still right for me now? I think still we come up to these critical junctures where we have to decide, now what? Now, there's a... a Christian or maybe a churchy kind of lingo that gets put onto that to say if you're trying to figure out what in the world is next, uh, now what? And you're trying to figure out not just what you want to be next, but what you think God might want for you to be next. The, the word that we put on that is calling. It's, it's indicative because I, I'm kind of working, and I want to tilt my hand here, from, a, from an angle that says, I don't think you're, uh, you're in the place that you are, both in the relationships, in the school, in the employment, in the family situation. I don't, I don't think you are where you are by accident. I don't think that you are thrown into this world. I don't think that it was random. I think that God has a plan behind all of this. If you can kind of use the imagery, I think he's behind pulling the strings and levers. I think he's orchestrating things. I think he has a plan, and that means that he has... A calling for each one of us. And I hope this morning by dropping in on a couple places in the Bible that you'll see that this calling is something that we all have in common and there's an element of this calling that we all, that we all have unique. So uh, to understand what I'm talking about, and I, and I, and I hope it's my... It's my devout goal that, that this is not just like what Dirk thinks, you know, for your life. 
Uh, honestly, you know, that doesn't matter, right? Nor am I qualified or really even have any interest in that. But, but we're going to the Word of God. We're going to the Bible because what I hope for and what I hope you hope for as well is to figure out what God wants uh, for your life, no matter what stage of it you might be in. So we're going to drop in on the book in the Old Testament, an all-in story in First Kings. Uh, before we do some context, the uh, prophet Elijah, there's two guys that we're going to be working with, Elijah and Elisha, and it's kind of confusing because they sound really similar. Uh, But first one, Elijah. Uh, God comes to him and says, Elijah, I want you to, and and we can maybe use the word call. In the Bible, it's uh, anoint or maybe commission. But Elijah, I want you to commission or call uh, three people. And I think it's important for us to know the the three. He says, in this order, I want you to to call uh, Haziel, king of Aram. I want you to call Jehu, king of uh, Israel. And I want you to call... Elisha as a prophet in Israel. That's right, Elijah. I want you to call, I want you to anoint, commission your successor. And a few verses later, we get to that story, which is our all-in story, the calling of Elisha. Today's passage on the screen and also on the front of the flow sheet from 1 Kings 19, a couple verses, read it through here. Um, Verse 19. So he, this is Elijah now, so Elijah set out from there. And he found Elisha, uh, son of uh, Shaphat, who was plowing. There was a, a twelve yoke of oxen ahead of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle over him. Uh, he let the, uh, left the oxen. This is Elisha ran after Elijah and said, let me, let me kiss my father and my mother, and, and then I'll follow you. Then Elijah said, go back for what have I done to you? He returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen that slaughtered them. Using the equipment from the oxen, he boiled their flesh, gave it to all the people, and they ate. Then he set out and followed Elijah and became his, his servant. I want us to notice a couple things about what we see as the, the person of Elijah. You know, we talk so much about, um, you know, what is God calling us to? And just to tilt my hand even further, I think this passage and, and others in the Bible that we'll get to too tell us that, that each one of us, each one of you, God has this call on you that comes in three parts. He's calling you to be someone, he's calling you to do something, and he's calling you to leave something. I think it's critically important. It's maybe the shortest one that we'll get to. I almost want to just get it out of the way, but it's critically important for, for each one of us to realize that first and foremost, God is calling us to be someone. It's to be a certain kind of person. And uh, I, I love in the, in the story, in the all-in story here, is that when God calls Elisha, right? When Elijah comes by and taps him on the shoulder or here he, he throws his, his mantle over him, He's plowing a field. Uh, and not, not just uh, him plowing a field, but he's got a yoke of oxen, which is like two or more tied together. He's got a yoke of oxen. He's, he's in the rear, and there's 11 other ones in front of him. Uh, I'm sorry, in a culture when uh, fields were typically uh, owned and operated by families, maybe one probably sharing a yoke of oxen with somebody else, how is it that Elisha is operating all 12 at the same time Answer, he's not. He's got 11 others, employees probably, who are plowing the field ahead of him. 
I, I don't want us to think about this like small time kind of uh, Elisha just scraping by or maybe bored, right? Like twiddling his thumbs, waiting for something better to come along. I mean, no, Elisha is in charge of Elisha Inc. <laughs> I mean, Elisha has got a massive farm to manage, right? Elisha, Elisha has a business to run. He's not bored, tired, or waiting for something to interrupt his life. No, he's got it figured out. I love that God calls him there. God finds him in that place. I love that he doesn't find uh, Elisha in like prophet school or Bible camp or seminary or, 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 or something else where he's like getting ready to follow God's call. I, I love that he's not working for a Christian not-for-profit organization, kind of rising in the ranks. God finds him in the field plowing almost as if God doesn't really care so much about what he's doing but the kind of heart that he has, the kind of person that he is. And so as you're thinking about just what God might be calling you to, you know, so often we go right towards like the nine to five, you know, the, the, the vocation, the employment, the whatever it is that you get paid for or something like that. And said, so, yes, that's a part of it, right? But it's a smaller part of a much greater, much greater circle that says, listen, God is asking you to be a kind of person, and I think this is what all of us have in common, have in unity, which is why this community is so awesome, because we're all striving to be the kind of person whose heart beats in sync with God, to be the kind of person that looks like Jesus Christ, that lives like him, that loves like him. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says that Jesus Christ was the firstborn of all creation, and it's a, it's a kind of an odd phrase that we don't really use anymore, but it's almost like Jesus came first, right? As the one who wasn't just created, but he just always existed with the Father, with the Spirit. And, and it's like all of us as he, human beings, like, like our aim is to bend our lives to, to kind of match the life of Jesus, to have humility like Jesus, to have love and grace like Jesus had, have patience, have humility like Jesus had, have selflessness, have goodness like Jesus had. So kind of get that out of the way to say, hey, our calling, friends, what we all have in common is to be someone, is to be the kind of person who lives and loves like God's son, Jesus Christ. This is where it gets messy. God is calling us to be someone. God is calling us to do something. In the story here, in verse 19, Elijah casually walks by, throws his, his mantle over uh, Elisha while he's plowing. And a mantle is something like an overcoat or a cloak, something uh, heavy and big, something that he, he could use for a, a blanket to keep him warm when it's cold out at night. Now, he, he's the prophet of Israel. It's sort of like me handing over my Bible to someone and saying, like, here you go. You guys have seen this thing kind of since we started, and you'll see it for a long time. It means something. It's a gesture. It's like tools of the trade, something like that. So when he throws the, the mantle or the cloak over Elisha, Elisha gets it. He knows. He knows what Elijah is doing to him, what this means. Most of the time we think of the mantle as like this high honor. A prophet of Israel is now being bestowed on Elisha. 
You know, and so the mantle might be um, fitting, uh, look appropriate to the office of which it signifies. So gold and ornate, right, just big and maybe furry to communicate like power or, you know, influence. No, no, no. I'll tell you about the mantle. Um, three years ago, uh, Elijah, Elijah, who's been wearing this thing so far, three years ago, uh, he became a fugitive. He's been operating without a home for three years on the run, going from place to place. Uh, just previously to this passage, a couple dozen verses earlier, the queen of Israel, Jezebel, had just put a price on the prophet's head. That's how, how much she wanted him gone. This thing is a dangerous, uh, dangerous item to wear. I'm thinking that it's, it's not so much like gold and ornate. You know, I don't necessarily know, but I'm, I'm just thinking it's dirty, it's old, it's used, it's unwashed, it's stinky, and most of all, it's dangerous. The call for what Elisha ought to do is certainly not a call to safety by any means. It's a call to, to risk. As he throws the mantle over him, Elisha takes off after. There's a call to be, there's a call to do. Sometimes we hear these stories of, uh, of all-in kind of stories. And it's easy for us to say, this is, this is the paradigm, this is the example, this is the, this is the design of which we're trying to fit into. And to an extent, I think it is. To an extent. Is it, um, sometimes what we do when we think about, like, what does God want for my life? You know, I'm re- reevaluating, I'm asking this now what question. We get this sense, like, maybe it's, maybe it's like God is asking me, you know, what it means to go all in is, is to start doing, like, ministry somehow, you know, for a church or for a nonprofit or just some other kind of, and, and we'll start to, like, do that more and more, you know? And, and that moment in which we go all in is the moment when we like, quit our day job and go work full-time for the ministry or the not-for-profit or, or for whatever it is. And I think the, that's totally true sometimes. For Elisha, it certainly is. Going all in means becoming the next prophet of Israel, Except for remember the context verses that I mentioned earlier. Is that when God comes on Elijah, the the first guy now, and he says, listen, three people I want you to commission or anoint, call. And in reverse order now, he starts, uh, the last one on the list is this first one that he gets to work on is uh, Elisha as a prophet in Israel. Uh, Before that, it was uh, the middle one was Jehu, the prophet over Israel. And then a weird one, (laughs) Haziel. Anoint Haziel, king of completely secular Aram. Or if not secular, maybe certainly not God worshipers. It strikes me as the call to Elisha to go all in is a call to take on the prophet into the full-time ministry. But, but just because that's what God's call was for him doesn't mean that's a call for you is that God has a way of calling people to different positions. A graphic designer, right? A secular king of, uh, or king of uh, secular Aram, whatever it, it might be. A teacher, engineer, whatever. God is calling you to be someone 
to do something, to be someone is what we all have in common. Here's the thing, to do something, we don't, we don't have it all in common. This is, like I said, where it gets messy because I don't know what God is calling you to do. In fact, uh, we've been having for the last uh, couple months now these, uh, these staff meetings where we get together and we kind of talk about big picture stuff, right? Like, where is the Lord taking this ministry, this church? And, you know, since we started, um, it's probably because we... <laughs> Like, I personally, I take responsibility. I don't have a, a, a mind to, like, hold a lot of, like, vision, mission statements kind of in here. So when he said, hey, starting out, you know, people ask, what's your mission? He said, I don't know, Jesus sort of gave us one, right? Uh, when he left, for the last thing he said in Matthew 28, he goes, hey, make disciples. Go make disciples of all nations. So he said, if we need a mission statement, I don't know, make disciples. It's two words. How hard is that to remember? So uh, if you call this place your home and people wonder what your church's mission is, it's make disciples. And then try to walk away quickly. Uh, because then people will start to ask, what kind of disciples? Well, what does a disciple look like? And so trying, you know, a few years in now to define that a little further and say, at Encounter, what does a disciple look like? And I'll, t- I'll just be completely honest with you. We totally hit a wall. You know, and it's been a couple of months now because, honestly, we pick it up, we kick it around for a little while, and then we, just, we drop it for a little while. Because I don't have a very good answer, at least not yet. Hopefully, I, th- I think I will at some point, and we'll give you a good one. But at least for the purpose here, the problem with, with hitting a wall is that I don't know what you're called to. You know, and as somebody, and as a church, I don't, I don't know totally how to help you with that. And so, you know, if anything, you might be able to say, listen, your role as a disciple is to follow wherever God is leading you. It may not be a call to safety. It could be a call to risk. We'll get to that next week. But, but listen, I want to do whatever we can. We want to do for your children as well. Whatever we can do to help you with whatever unique calling to do, whatever it is. So if you're uh, called to start a racquetball league here at church, that'd be awesome. Um, guy that just did that had a baby. So anyway, um, whatever it looks like, we want to help. That's kind of part of our DNA, um, simply to help. But, but listen, I can't, I can't direct you, and that's the point. Call the be, call the do. And the problem is sometimes, sometimes you have a strong sense of what it is that you're called to do, and then it doesn't happen. <laughs> sometimes it's, it's, it's this unbelievably clear sign that this is exactly what God wants me to do, where he wants me to do it, and with whom he wants me to be with. But it just doesn't happen. And time goes by. And we question, was this the Lord's voice that I heard? Was it not? When, When Elijah throws the mantle, the cloak, over Elisha, and he says, you know what this means. You know what this is about. You can use kind of the, you know, in this year, the king was, and he was anointed by, you know, this prophet. You can kind of back that up. It took 18 years for Elisha to become the next prophet of Israel. 18 years after the mantle was thrown on him. 18 years of following Elijah around. 18 years of, of like, 
making the coffee in the group. 18 years of questioning. Did I experience the voice of God or didn't I? 18 years of wondering whether or not that was the Lord's voice or someone else's. And after 18 years, we finally get to the point when Elisha is installed. And it's a glorious moment. And it has a lot to do with calling. So just kind of stick with me. He gets to this moment where he finally comes into his own. He, he takes on the full uh, appointment of the office. And, uh, you know, and he, it's in 2 Kings 2. I'm not going like, to read the whole thing for you, so I'll just paraphrase. But one of the things that he does is he asks for a double portion from Elijah. What can I do for you? I want a double portion. And a lot of people are like, oh man, it's like twice as many miracles, twice as much good stuff, twice as much. So maybe I should ask for a double portion. I just want to say like, this doesn't have anything to do with anything, but like the whole double portion thing, he's asking for the firstborn inheritance because the firstborn son in the ancient cultures got double because he was supposed to carry it on. And then all the other sons just got like a single portion. So he's not asking for like, I want to be twice as good as you. No, he's saying, I want to be as faithful as you. You were the first. I want God to use me just as much as he used you. Okay, that's the double portion thing. What happens next is for calling, clouds come around the two of them and, in fact, come between the two of them. And maybe you've pictured the scene, you know, the scene famous artist uh, depicted or just seen it in like Sunday school or something. And there's clouds all the way around and, uh, and there's a chariot and the chariot breaks him up, scoops up Elijah and, and, and takes him up into heaven. And it's this incredible sight. And the way that it's described in 2 Kings um, chapter 2 is that there's a cloud, a funnel in the shape of a funnel. There's flashes of fire. And said, like, wait a second, these are not the puffy, nice clouds that, that I've usually uh, envisioned. Um, a cloud like a funnel says to me, tornado, flashes of fire said to me, um, what accompanies tornadoes is storms, lightning, thunder. I'm thinking this terrifying sight. And then there's the, the chariot behind it all. It's like chariots, oh yeah, those are like ta- ancient taxis to get from like A to B. And I said, no, no, no. chariot, no, no. Chariots were, were armed. Chariots were, were made of iron. You know, when you would take a chariot out, the thing would be so massively heavy that the animal that would pull the chariot into battle oftentimes died just simply out of exhaustion from carrying the chariot so long. This is how big and heavy these are. These are the ancient equivalent of like tanks that scoop up Elijah and bring him into heaven amidst a tornado, amidst lightning and thunder. And the, the reaction that Elisha has is totally appropriate. He falls to his knees, he tears his clothes because of what he just saw. What he saw was a familiar sight in the Old Testament. What he saw was the glory of God on earth. What he saw was the, was the just might right arm of God reaching down to collect his person. And it's terrifying because everyone up to that point who saw God, the, the sentence laid on them to drop dead because what does, what does unholiness have to do with holiness? What does unrighteousness have to do with righteousness? 
is that, that we can't, we tremble in the sight of God. We, we can't stand up to, to his justice. And now, Elisha sees this happening, the justice of God raining down. Only instead of scooping up Elijah and sending him down, it scoops him up and sends him up. Instead of the, the just right arm of God coming down and striking him dead, it picks him up and raises him to life. And Elisha doesn't get it. How does the justice of God not kill the man as unrighteous as he and all of us are? He falls to the ground. He tears his clothes. He doesn't get it. And as uh, Tim Keller writes, but we do. (laughs) The justice of God doesn't always send him down. Because the verses, like 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Will forgive uh, us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. I'd expect to see merciful there. He's, he's full of mercy. He's full of love. He's full of grace. No, no, no. He's faithful and just. The justice of God has always been what sends people down, what kills, not, not gives life. What John knows in writing these words is that the justice of God was paid for by God's Son, Jesus Christ. That Christ rode the chariot to hell so that we'd be lifted up. That Christ suffered death so that we'd have life. And if we confess our sins, we find ourselves in Jesus. And so for God to strike us down... It would be unjust. It would be a double payment. The sin has been paid for by Jesus, not by us. If he were to, to hold us accountable, it, would, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be God's right justice. It'd be a double penalty. So God's justice demands that if you're in Christ, God's justice demands you have life. God's justice demands You have salvation. God's not just love and grace and mercy. God's justice demands that you have eternal life because it was paid for by Jesus. And anything else would be totally unjust. If we confess our sins, we repent, if we leave something behind, if we, in a sense, burn the past, which is exactly what Elijah, I'm sorry, Elisha does next. After he threw the mantle over them, over him, he left the oxen, ran after Elijah and said, 
Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I'll follow you. Elijah said, go back. What have I done to you? And I've always wondered about that line. Like, what have I, what have I done to you? I'm like, I, I don't know. And how does he know what the answer is? Someone told me I was reading it wrong. You got to say, what have I done to you? He, he's saying, I haven't done anything, man. The Lord has called you, so you're in charge now. Go wherever he's leading to you, right? So he's like, oh, okay, well, if I'm in charge now. He, he goes back, and he doesn't just kiss his father and mother goodbye. No, he takes the 12 yoke of oxen, which is at least 24 animals. I mean, it's like big, really big. We're talking tens of thousands of pounds of meat. So much so that uh, to eat it all without like refrigeration freezer or something like that, he'd have to like his village, his neighbor's village, like everybody would come around to join in this massive feast. In fact, he's got to burn the plow equipment just to have fuel enough to cook it all. Or he burns the plow equipment because the animals are going anyway. What he's doing is saying, when I find out who I'm supposed to be, and living out who I'm supposed to be first, I'm given a mission, a purpose in life of what I'm supposed to do. And now I have to leave my old life behind. He wants to make sure that the last time he plowed a a field was the last time he would ever plow a field. There's no going back to his past life. Listen, John tells us if we confess our sins, God's justice works on our behalf. So I just want to say, if you confess, if you change, if you repent, if you turn, whatever kind of imagery the Bible gives us, put that, lay it over top. But, but if you repent, if you change, if you turn... There's something to be left behind. The Bible has them peppered, stories like this peppered throughout. Jesus met Zacchaeus. And and in Jesus' presence, Zacchaeus says, listen, I'm a tax collector. I've ripped off lots of people. I'm going to give half of my money, which is an extraordinary wealth, half of my money away to the poor. And if I've ripped someone off, cheated them, which he almost certainly did, I'm going to pay him back four times what I stole, probably doing away with the other half of his fortune. The, the woman who breaks the jar, the, uh, the perfume to wash Jesus' feet with it, and the Pharisees get upset because they say, this, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. You know, she was a prostitute. Part of the jar, part of the perfume was her sex appeal. It was part of her trade. She's breaking it out. She's pouring it above Jesus. She's making a statement like Elisha's doing, like Zacchaeus did, to say, listen, the last time I participated in that was the last time that I'm ever doing that. I can't go back. Stories throughout about making a statement. What's yours? If you want God's justice to work for you instead of against you, listen, confess your sins. Make a statement. I'm guessing you don't have 24 oxen to put down and have a feast, but what can you do? Maybe it's a simple step of just bringing someone else into your dark place, into the dark corridors of your heart, to say, listen, I... 
I find myself in a routine, in an area, whatever, like pride, it just consumes me, it gets over me, whatever it might be. And the, the first step to burning my past may just well be, be opening up the dark areas of my heart, letting somebody in and praying and hoping that they bring a light. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion together. And I want to make a, an invitation to you when you hear about the body of, body of Christ being given to you and the blood of Christ being shed to you, maybe the first step of burning your past isn't to bring someone else in the room in, into the dark quarters of your heart, but to, but to bring God. Bring God into whatever it might be that you're struggling with and hoping he brings a light to burn your past. Stay seated. I want to pray for you, and we're going to have uh, we're going to celebrate communion together with instructions. Uh, gracious God, we um, we we put ourselves before you now, and uh, and God, uh, we ask for your your boldness to to lie down in front of you and to, to pray, Lord, that you would grab a hold of our lives, uh, Lord, that you would give us the the courage to open up the dark places in our heart, God, that you would help us. Burn our paths, Lord. Burn our paths so that we never, have to, we never have to go back there again because in you there is life, there is salvation, there is eternity. Give us that to hold on to. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, for a, a communion time here uh, this Sunday, we, uh, if, if you're new to Encounter, uh, this is going to be an unusual. It, uh, it's odd. We believe that it's an it's odd thing for a, for a really good reason because Jesus said, do this. Uh, and so we're trying to be as faithful as we can to that. Um, so what this process is called, it's an ancient, um, it, it's an ancient practice that we're doing here called intinction. But you'll, uh, you'll come forward, and we ask to use the center aisles to come on forward. Go to the uh, stations on either side where somebody will rip off a, a piece of bread for you. And the words are going to be the body of Christ given, given for you. And then somebody else is holding a cup. And uh, we invite you to dip that bread into the cup. And as you eat it, hear the words, the blood of Christ shed for you. And, and all of this for the forgiveness of our sins. If uh, you're new to encounter, to church in general, um, this, uh, this act is, um, is, is for you. If you find yourself um, repenting, if you find yourself laying, your, laying down before the Lord and saying, I'm sorry, please help me, please forgive me. Uh, regardless of your church background or uh, denomination or anything like that, we, we really want to invite you forward. If you're not there yet, if you're not quite ready, you know, if uh, spiritually you're, you're not at a point where you believe all of this yet, um, that's okay in your own time. We do ask that you, you know, stand with the church and, and participate however you feel led. Uh, the worship team will lead us in singing all while. I invite you to, the people of God, please stand up and we'll go right into the song afterwards. But when Jesus started communion on that night, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of my new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, we proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again. 
the gifts of God for the people of God.